Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Fallon Chassel, and I am your humble host for Undergraduates Unpublished. I'm live in the Loyola University School of Mass Communication sound booth, only a few steps away from Bobay Hall, where these incredible stories were written. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the stories. This is a very special episode because it's our first episode, but this is also a very special episode because um, our inaugural story is Away With Words by Sophie Trisk. And this is a story about the power of writing. And I really think that parallels what I'm trying to do here at Undergraduates Unpublished to show the power that writing has and how incredible storytelling is. I approached Sophie for the story after reading her outspoken opinion piece for Loyola's newspaper, The Maroon. I believe a strong writer is a strong writer, whether writing opinion pieces for The Maroon or fiction pieces like Away With Words. I hope you enjoy. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the story. Away With Words by Sophie Trisk. Finally. Finally. It's two o'clock. At two o'clock on Thursdays, it's always story writing time, my favorite time of the school day. I have my green English notebook out on my desk before anyone else. It has my full name, Miranda June Avery, written on it in bright blue marker. When the rest of the class is ready, Miss Meadows says, today's writing prompt is your greatest wish. Write a story about the one thing you want most in the world. Alexis Parker, the most popular girl at Skyview Middle, leans over to me and whispers, Are you going to wish for nice clothes so you don't have to come to school looking like a homeless person? Her two best friends, Kaylee Jenkins and Cecilie Adler, laugh behind their hands. Encouraged, Alexis goes on. Or will you wish for a dad who isn't in jail? My dad isn't in jail, I snap, but I could feel myself getting red with embarrassment. He just got out last week, Cecilie hisses. Her dad is Skyview's police chief, so she knows all about how Gerald Avery was arrested for robbing a liquor store. Or maybe you wish you weren't fat, Kaylee chimes in. Girls, Miss Meadows says sharply, stop this right now. One more word and you'll go to the principal's office. Alexis picks up her pencil and starts writing, a little angelic smile on her face. Kaylee and Cecilie follow her lead, like always. Those two can't think for themselves. I hate them, but at the same time, I wish I could be like them, or at least be friends with them. But I don't want to spoil my favorite time of day by thinking about them anymore. So I pick up my pencil and I think of what I want most in the world. I want mom to find a job and stop being sad. I want to stop living in the projects. I want the big stack of envelopes on our kitchen table, all with the words late or overdue, stamped on them, to go away, because each one of them has a bill inside of it that we can't afford to pay. I want the landlord to stop threatening to kick us out of the apartment. I wish we had money so we could buy new clothes, or go to concerts, or take trips to Disney World, all like the other kids in fifth grade. I write my name at the top of the blank page. The room suddenly feels hot, 
as if someone has cranked the heater way up, like they do in the middle of winter. The walls seem to be closing in on me. No, that's not it. The room isn't getting smaller. I'm getting bigger. Something inside of me is expanding, breaking free. My eyes start to itch and tingle like crazy, so I cover them with my hands. But my hands are tingling too, like there's lightning under my skin. I pick up my pencil, hold it so tightly that it almost snaps in two. I need to write. If I can get these words out, these wishes and wants, I'll feel normal again. I need to write more than I've ever needed food or water or air. So that's exactly what I do. My pencil blurs across the paper at top speed, filling that whiteness with words. The lightning beneath my fingers leaps onto the page. I don't even know what I'm writing. I'm not thinking about the story consciously. It just flows out of me like water from an upside down bucket. When it's finished, I slump back in my chair, exhausted. I'm sweating and breathing hard like I just got done running a marathon. I look at the clock and see that it's already 2.30. In 10 minutes, Miss Meadows will tell us all to stop and to have some people read their stories out loud. I read my words, those words I don't really remember writing, and I know without Miss Meadows telling me that it's the best thing I've ever written. I also know I won't share it with anyone else, not ever. This is my story, and Mom's, and no one else's. The words on the paper aren't mine. It's like I reached into my mom's head and wrote down her exact thoughts. Excitement and horror steal over me as I read them. Nicole Avery was tired. It was a bone-deep, soul-deep lethargy that no coffee or energy drink could touch. If not for Miranda, Nicole didn't think she'd be able to get out of bed in the morning. There was just no point. She'd been unemployed for three months and four days now. Hours of scouring the web had yielded nothing. Nicole was in a dark tunnel, and she couldn't even see a glimmer of light at the end. The worst part was that she was dragging her 11-year-old daughter, the only good thing to come out of that trebacity she'd called the marriage, with her. She spent all morning on that hated computer, and when she had nothing to show for it at two, she flung her laptop aside with a grunt of disgust and switched on the TV. There was a crack down the middle of the screen from the time Gerald punched it in a drug-fueled rage when a football game went south, but of course they couldn't afford to replace it. Oh well, at least he hadn't punched her. That time, anyway. Nicole drowned the next 30 minutes in some stupid, mindless reality show, her eyes gazing over. The images, all split in two by the cracking in the screen, flitted into her eyeballs and straight through her brain, like flour through a sieve. The ringing of the doorbell pulled her out of her stupor. What if it was Gerald? What would he do to her? If he knew she was the one who'd given the police that anonymous tip that led to his arrest, he would kill her. Don't be a dumbass, Nikki, she scolded herself. Shit like that only happens in movies. Gerald's probably holed up in a crack house somewhere, rediscovering his old addictions after the enforced sobriety of prison. She heaved herself off the sagging brown couch, ignoring the little puffs of stuffing that billowed up in raged clouds. Just a minute, she called. But when she opened the front door, the hallway was empty. Whoever rang the doorbell had left a battered-looking suitcase in the hall outside of her apartment. Nicole glanced up and down the hall, but it was deserted. What should she do? Call the police? It could be a bomb, or anthrax, or God knew what else. But that was just ridiculous. Nicole pulled the suitcase inside and unzipped it. 
Jesus fucking Christ, she cried, not aware that she was speaking out loud. The suitcase was stuffed with cash, literally filled to the brim. With trembling fingers, Nicole sorted through the banded wads of green bills. They were all twenties and hundreds. How much was in here? A thousand bucks? No, more than that. Five thousand? Who the fuck knew? Who the fuck cared? It was enough money to get her and Miranda out of the financial quicksand that was burying them alive. Her heart jittered like a frantic dancer, then seemed to rise out of her chest like it was inflated with helium. What if it was drug money someone was trying to get rid of? Could she be arrested for having it? Her cell phone was lying on top of the stack of overdue bills on the kitchen table. She picked it up, dialed nine, and stopped. They would be evicted in two weeks if she didn't come with $758. Surely she could pay the rent, get the hellhound of a landlord off of her back, and then give the suitcase to the police. There was so damn much money. No one would know she used some of it. It wasn't like she was using it to buy something frivolous. She was saving herself and her daughter from homelessness. It was worth the risk. All right, class. Who wants to share their story? Miss Meadows asked. She glanced at me because I always love to share. I shake my head and slam my notebook shut. Even then, I have the insane idea that my teacher and classmates can see through my green cover, like it's made of glass, and that my weird, terrible, wonderful story is on display. Are you all right, Miranda? You look very pale, Miss Mello says. I'm fine, I say quietly. I zone out for the final hour of the school day. I want to recapture the way I felt when I wrote that story, like the whole world was on fire. Why had that feeling come over me? Did it mean anything? When the final bell rings, I hurry to my bus. Kaylee Drinkins tries to trip me as I walk to my seat in the back, but I could see it coming a mile away and avoid it. Kaylee always tries to trip me. You'd think she'd be over it by now, because it's so stupid and lame. I do my math homework. I've decided that I don't want to think about what happened in my class anymore. It was just a fluke, nothing else. It's 4.30 by the time the bus drops me off at my stop. It's the last one on the route. I almost run to my apartment building. The outside is covered in graffiti, the roof sometimes leaks, and a few of the windows are boarded up. A couple of high school kids in baggy sweatshirts stand outside smoking, but none of them even look at me. Big kids never look at the little kids unless they're getting in the way. I wish I could take the elevator because our apartment is on the fourth floor, but it's been out of order for as long as I can remember. Hey, Mom. I call as I unlock the front door. Hey, Tiny. Tiny is the gray bunny Mom got me for my 10th birthday. At the sound of my voice, Tiny comes to the bars of her cage sniffing eagerly. Hi, Miranda, Mom calls from the kitchen. I hurry in there to get my after-school snack. I eat the same thing every day, a grilled cheese sandwich and a Twinkie. Right away, I know something is different today. Mom's green eyes are glowing with more life than I've seen in them for a long time. And as soon as I walk in, she runs across the room and flings her arms around me. It's going to be okay, honey. We're going to make it, she says. And I'm shocked because she's crying. I haven't seen her cry since the last time Dad hit her. What's going on? I ask. I'm pulling away from her. But who am I kidding? I know what she's going to say. I know it like I know my own name. Part of me wants to scream, Don't say it, Mom, because her saying it will make it real. But the larger part of me wants to hear it 
and has to hear it. It's the weirdest thing, Mom says, drying her eye. I was just watching TV this afternoon when I heard the doorbell ring. When I opened the door, I found this. I don't want to look, but against my will, my eyes are drawn to the battered black suitcase tucked under the couch. What's in it? I'm surprised I actually get the words out, because my throat is dry as dust. It's money, Miranda. A lot of money. Thousands of dollars. I just got back from paying the rent when you came in. The landlord didn't ask questions. He probably wouldn't care if I sold my own soul, so long as he got the money, Mom tells me. Something totally random pops into my head that second. At the bottom of my first report card, Miss Meadows has written, Miranda has a way with words. I've always loved my way with words, but now I'm scared of myself, of what I might have done. I almost pulled out my green notebook and showed Mom my story I'd written in her words. But she's happy. I don't want to scare her. I don't want to break this happiness like how Dad once broke the TV screen. What are we going to do with the rest of the money? I ask. Mom's eyebrows come together, a sign that she's thinking super hard. I don't know yet, honey. Probably turned it over to the police. Someone might have stolen it and dropped it off here so the police wouldn't catch them with it, she says. But we live all the way on the fourth floor. That seems like a lot of work. Besides, the police already have a lot of money. What would they use it for anyway? Mom laughs, but it isn't a nice, something is funny laugh. Buy more guns and tanks, I guess, she said. Her voice is as bitter as the vinegar she once used to wash out my mouth when she found out that I had called Alexis the B-word on the playground. Then we should keep it. It's not hurting anyone, I say reasonably. Mom opens her mouth, about to protest, but then she changes her mind. It's been too long since we did something nice, just you and me. We're going out to dinner, Miranda. Where do you want to go? Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, I say immediately. That's the fanciest restaurant in Skyview. Alexis and her friends won't believe it when I tell them I've been there. Mom and I put on our nicest clothes. She spends 30 minutes doing her makeup, and she lets me wear some blush and lip gloss because it's a special occasion. Our fancy dinner is magical. I feel like Cinderella, entering a whole new world when she walks into the princess castle with her beautiful ball gown and glass slippers. The waiter says stuff like, what can I get you ladies tonight? And when mom says she'll have a glass of red wine, he says, yes ma'am, coming right up. After dinner, we go to Cold Treats, the best ice cream place that ever existed on the planet. I get a chocolate shake, because that's what I've always gotten at Cold Treats. It tastes like, it tastes of sugar, chocolate, whipped cream, and bittersweet memories flood my tongue. When I was in third grade, my class went on a field trip to the Sioux. It cost $10 to go. I talked, I talked about nothing else for weeks, so Mom set aside the money. But a couple of days before the field trip, Dad took the money and used it to buy a bottle of whiskey. I cried all that morning, but that didn't change the fact that I had to go to school and spend all day in the boring classroom and not go on the field trip. After a school day that felt like went on for eternity, I was ready to climb into my bus when I spotted my dad's car in the parking lot. I approached him warily, still angry about him taking the money, afraid he was angry at me for something. Hi, Randa, he said, lowering the window. He was the only one who ever used that nickname, and hearing it gave me a warm feeling inside. He didn't call me Randa when he was mad, so he wasn't going to be mean today. Hey, Dad, I said, climbing into the passenger seat. 
When he was in a good mood, he let me sit up front, even though I wasn't big enough. Want a shake? Dad asks. Sure, I say, putting my feet up on the dash. Why are you picking me up anyway? Dad sighed loudly. I'm sorry, Randa. I'm sorry you couldn't go on the field trip. I shouldn't have taken that money. I wanted to stay angry with him, but I couldn't. The guilt in his eyes, the same shade of that dark blue as mine, cut me deeply. It's okay, I muttered, but I wish you wouldn't do drugs or drink so much. We had an assembly last week where a police officer came, and he told us to say no to drugs. You're right, sweetie. I'm working on it. Hopefully this time will be different, Dad says. We got ginormous shakes at cold treats and just drove around and around. Dad asked me about my teachers, about the other kids in school, about the books we were reading in class. I wish that drive would never end. By the time we got back to our apartment, I didn't mind so much that I didn't get to go to the zoo. As soon as we walked in the door, Dad flopped on the couch and switched on the TV. I was stunned and horrified to realize that he was crying. Two weeks later, he was arrested. My dad wasn't always mean, but the drugs and the darkness that lived inside of him were always stronger than the man who picked me up from school that day. Creatives deserve to have creative freedom, not an editable template. Landing Lion's freeform canvas allows you to have full control over your brand, not partial control over pre-made templates like other website development platforms. Creating web pages shouldn't be hard. Check out Landing Lion to see how easy it could be. Earth to Miranda. Earth to Miranda, my mom says with a laugh. Are you still with me? Yeah, I was just thinking about Dad, about the time he took me here, I say. Don't think about him, honey. He's in the past now, Mom says. When we get home, Mom and I watch Up, our favorite movie in the universe. I take Tiny out of her cage and hold her in my lap while we watch. Her fur is soft and her little pink nose twitches, like she's commentating on the movie, just like Mom and me. By the time Up is over, it's 10 o'clock, and Mom says I have to go to bed because it's school night. I go to my room and put on my PJs, and that's when I notice that the Beach Fever poster that hangs above my bed is missing. Beach Fever is the best boy band ever. I sometimes daydream about going to the school dance with the lead singer, Jason Ross, and he doesn't even look at Alexis or any of the other pretty, skinny girls. I had seen the poster earlier when I picked out my fancy dress, but now all that's left is the mark on the wall where the tape used to be. Mom, where's my Beach Fever poster? I call. Mom comes into my room. She frowns in confusion as she looks around. I don't know, sweetie. It was here earlier, she says. Yeah, I know, I say biting my lips. Why would anyone want to take my beach fever poster? Are you sure you didn't take it down, Mom asks. Why would I do that, I ask. I don't know, Miranda, but I don't see it anywhere, Mom says. I can buy you a new poster if we don't find it tomorrow. I think she likes saying that. Likes that she has enough money to get me nice things. I let mom tuck me in, but the disappearance of the beach fever poster unsettles me for some reason. It disappeared just as suddenly as the suitcase full of money appeared in the hall outside of our apartment. Before she leaves out the room, mom kisses me and turns on my Harry Potter nightlight. 
I know 11 is too old to be afraid of the dark. It's a leftover fear from when Dad lived with us. A couple of times, I woke up in the middle of the night to find him standing over my bed, staring down at me with something hard and cold and evil in his eyes. I'm afraid that if I don't sleep with a light on, I'll wake up to find that shadow man standing beside my bed again. Tonight, I can't sleep, no matter how much I toss and turn or count sheep. I've never felt more awake in my life. Eventually, I give up trying to sleep and pace around my room, thinking about, what else, my story in the green notebook. Had I really changed reality with my words? Would the suitcase full of money appear if I hadn't written about it? Or had I just seen the future? I pulled the green notebook out of my backpack and stared at it for a solid minute, wishing it could talk and reveal its secrets. Another thought occurs to me. What if the strange power doesn't come from me at all, but from the notebook? What if it's some sort of talisman? In Harry Potter, the wizards can only do magic if they have wands. In The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, my second favorite movie of all times, the kids can only enter Nordia through the wardrobe. There's one way to find out, a little voice inside of me whispers. You can try to write another story. I shrink back mentally, afraid of the very idea. But why am I afraid? I made something happen. I've never made something happen before. I've always felt powerless. I've always been the weak little girl, hiding under a bed so my dad wouldn't find me when he was angry and looking for someone to hit. But if this power is real, I could write my own destiny. This thought is thrilling. It must be how Dad felt when he got high on drugs for the first time. I pull out two sheets of drawing paper and sit on my bed, gripping the same pencil I used earlier. After a moment, I set the pencil down and grab another. What can I write about? What else do I want? That's easy. I want kids at school to like me. I want Alexis and her clique to accept me. Five minutes later, the page is still stubbornly blank. I haven't felt the faintest stirring of lightning beneath my fingers. Focus! I yell out loud. I reach deep into myself to find a place I normally never touch. And that's where I find the fire. That's when my eyeballs and fingertips begin tingling. Sweat breaks out on my forehead and I start to write, possessed by the insane frenzy that held me in the classroom. When the story is done, it's exactly 12 a.m. The witching hour, that magical time, according to books and movies, when anything can happen when one day ends and another begins. If this story becomes a reality, my new era in life will begin today. The second story is longer than the first one. It fills over to a second page. I've titled it, Alexis Parker's Change of Heart. In it, the most popular girl at Skyview Middle realizes that it doesn't matter how much money you have or where you live, you should accept everyone. In the end, she becomes best friend with a lonely outcast girl named, you guessed it, Miranda Avery. My exhilaration bleeds away, replaced by a powerful sense of wrongness. If this story comes true, I'll be controlling Alexis's mind. I would be taking her free will away. A violent shudder rips through me, and I fling the two pages across my bedroom. Is it too late to undo it? If I erase the words or rip the pages in little pieces or flush them down the toilet, will my writing lose its power? I think of the last paragraph of my story in which Alexis and I go to the park together. We are both so happy. Changing Alexis's mind can't be a bad thing if it'll make her a better person and make both of us happier. Besides, I hate being lonely. I love my mom, but I want to hang out with kids my own age who are interested in the same movies and music and celebrities as me. 
It's not like I'm making Alexis hurt anyone. What's the harm? Besides, the story might not even come true, because it wasn't written in the green notebook. I expect not to sleep at all that night, but writing that story must have taken something out of me, because the second I crawl into bed, I crash. If I have dreams, I don't remember them when my alarm goes off at 6.30. Mom has made pancakes, my favorite breakfast food ever. I eat them at top speed and get dressed in about 10 seconds. I feed Tiny and spend a couple of seconds scratching her behind the ears. I've never seen you this excited for school, Mom says with a laugh. I give her a hug and kiss her before racing out the door. I get on the bus and pull out the first Princess Diaries book, which I checked out from the library last week. But I can't concentrate. The words seem to move around on the page. As we approach Alexis's stop, I toss the book back in my backpack. My hands are slick with sweat, and my stomach feels like I've swallowed a bunch of hot knives. I've never been this tense in my life, not even on the day after my dad was arrested, when I knew all of the kids at school would laugh at me more than usual. Alexis gets on the bus, laughing and tossing her perfect blonde hair. She's in deep conversation with Kaylee. They start to head towards their usual seat, but then they freeze in their track, like someone has just flicked off a switch inside of them. Miranda! Alexis shrieks suddenly. OMG! Girl, I feel like I haven't seen you in, like, forever. I scoot over as Alexis takes the empty seat beside me. Kaylee and Cecilie sit across the aisle from us. The rest of the ride to school feels like a dream. We spend the 20 minutes talking about how Cecilie has a crush on Gavin Hartford, who's in 6th grade and the president of student council. None of the other kids notice anything unusual. They talk, read comics, and do what they usually do on the bus. My heart is glowing by the time we get off. I've never felt less poor and fat and alone. It's a relief to know that I have this power, that it doesn't come from a special notebook or pencil, but from my desires. This is the best day of my entire life. It gets even better when Alexis invites me to sit at her table, the best in the cafeteria, at lunch. I eat with the cool kids, and the entire school is there to see. Mom has a worried look on her face as I come in the front door, so happy I'm practically floating. Did something bad happen? I ask. Mom takes a deep breath, as if looking for the right words. Finally, she just blurts out, Tiny is gone, Miranda. What? I cried, rushing over to my bunny's cage. It's empty. The food bowl is empty. There are only a few drops of water left in the water bowl, and no rabbit anywhere in sight. I feel tears stinging in the back of my eyes, and I force them back. How did she get out of her cage? I ask. Mom shrugs helplessly. Right after you got on the bus, I headed to the grocery store. When I got back, Tiny was just gone, she says. Math isn't my best subject in school, but these calculations aren't hard. Tiny disappeared right around the time Alexis sat next to me on the bus. Understanding comes to me in a single bright flash, like how light bulbs come over the heads of cartoon characters. This weird new power I have isn't free. Every time I write something into being, I lose something. But that doesn't happen right away. My beach fever poster didn't vanish right when I wrote about the suitcase full of money, and Tiny was still here this morning. It seems like I only have to pay the price after my wishes come true. Miranda, are you okay? God, I'm so worried about this, Mom says. I'm going to my room, I say. Mom tries to put her arms around me, but I shook her off, and I go flop on my bed. I remember all the times I cuddled Tiny on this bed. I remember how my little bunny would fall asleep on my chest her ears twitching as she dreamed. 
I remember that stuff. And I feel a brief start. I remember that stuff. And I feel a brief, sharp stab of pain. Like a stomach cramp. Except in my heart. But then I remember how good it felt when Alexis sat next to me on the bus. How awesome it had been to sit with them in the cafeteria. That helped push away the sadness a little more. Maybe, I think. Maybe it was worth it. I can get a new bunny. Or maybe a puppy or a kitten. And I have human friends now. It was worth the price. But I'll be extra careful when using my writing powers from now on. The price might be a lot higher next time. At about 12.30 the next day, the phone rings, and Mom calls. Miranda, it's for you. It's your friend Alexis. She sounds excited. No one has ever called me or invited me anywhere in ages. Heart racing, I pick up the phone. Hey, I say trying to sound casual, like this happens every day. Hey, Alexis squeals. Kaylee, Cecilia, and I are going to a movie at 2. Want to come? Yeah, I exclaim. Cool. We'll pick you up in a half an hour, Alexis says. I go outside to wait for the Parkers. I don't want them to see our dingy little apartment. I think I'd die of embarrassment. When they pull up in their gray Mercedes, Miss Parker looks at me like I'm something gross she found at the bottom of a shoe. The old shame rises up in me. It disappears when Alexis tells her mom, This is my new friend Miranda. She's awesome. She says it with that same confident smile that makes teachers love her. I don't pay a lot of attention to the movie. I don't even remember what movie it is. All I care about is that I'm here, included, accepted. I've finally made a home for myself, a place where I belong. After the movie, we go out and eat hamburgers and ice cream. It's 6.30 when Miss Parker drops me off at my apartment. See you Monday, Alexis calls as I get out of the car. Have fun the rest of your weekend, I say. Sunday is always church day. Mom and I put on our best dresses. Hers is the same shade of green as her eyes mind is light blue with pink flowers. It's hard to pay attention to the priest, and a couple of times, Mom has to poke me to get me to stand or to sit or to kneel. I'm seized by a sudden and violent urge to run up to the altar and yell, Look at me. I'm like God. I can make things happen with my words. I'm not just Miranda, the fat loser daughter of an unemployed mother and criminal father. I'm something more now. But of course I keep quiet. I don't want the priest to exercise me or something. Because even though I've only had it for a few days, I can't imagine living without my new ability. How had I survived for 11 years without it? After church, we head back home. Are you okay, honey? You seemed a bit distracted in there, Mom says. I'm good. I just have a lot on my mind, I say as she digs around in her purse for our keys to the front door. As soon as we step inside the apartment, a terrible feeling crashes over me, like a wave. The air feels heavy, like the apartment contains a presence too big and malicious for this tiny space. Mom feels it too. I see it in the quick widening of her eyes and the way all the color drains out of her face so it looks like bleached bone instead of skin. But by the time the apartment door closes behind us, it's too late. My dad is sitting on the couch, staring at a football game on the cracked TV screen. His blonde hair is greasy and unwashed and his eyes are dead, flat blue. I know him well enough to know he's high on some kind of drug. Hey, Nikki, Randa, he says, meeting the TV. The sound of the nickname I used to love, said in that flat, dead voice, scares me. Get out of here, Gerald, Mom spits like an angry cat. Don't you know you're violating the restraining order? If you leave right now, I won't call the police. Dad laughs, a hollow, insane sound. 
I know what you did, Nikki. Didn't you think I'd find out? I don't know what the hell you're talking about, Mom says, but our hands are shaking. A gun appears in Dad's hand, as if by magic. You're the one who told the police about the holdup. You're the one who got my ass locked in jail. I didn't, Mom stammers. Yes, you did, you lying bitch, Dad screams, erupting from the couch. It's just like the old days, when Dad would rage and Mom would cower, and I would freeze, hoping not to be noticed. Don't use that language in front of Miranda, Mom cries shrilly. Dad lunges at her, and she grabs her laptop off the side of the table and flings it at him. He ducks, and the gun goes off. The sound is incredibly loud, much louder than I had thought it would be. Instinctively, I cover my ears and fall to the ground. The bullet takes out a bare light bulb, and the sound of shattering glass follows the gunshot. Dad roars like a wounded bull and raises the gun again. A moment before I even know what's going on. Dad, stop! I yell, grabbing his arm, trying to pull the gun down. He swings around, and the blood. He swings around, and the butt of the pistol slams into my right temple. The pain is bright and sharp and all-consuming. I fall to the ground, blinking rapidly to clear the blood out of my right eye. Mom starts to run towards me, shrieking incoherently. Dad points the gun at her and pulls the trigger. Smoke fills the living room, and when it clears, Mom is lying on the carpet, clutching her stomach. Blood pours out from beneath her hands in an uninterrupted flow, and I can see the slippery ropes of her insides. Mom starts clawing towards me, and Dad shoots her again, this time in the leg. Still dazed, I get to my feet, the room spinning into focus around me. Blood is still sheeting down the right side of my face, making me half blind. Stop shooting her, I yell. The neighbors will hear the shots and call 911. We'll be long gone by then, Dad says, grabbing me by the back of my dress. I managed to slither free, but my dress rips in the back. I tried to run towards my mom, but Dad blocked my way. His fist connects with my face, breaking my nose and closing my left eye. The pain threatens to overwhelm me again, but I know I can't let it. If I fall down now, this monster who is my father will grab me and do whatever horrible things he wants to do, whatever things make his eyes glow with a feral light. There's only one way to end this nightmare, and it's not by calling the cops. I race through the kitchen, knocking over a chair to block the entrance. It'll only hold him for a few seconds, but those few seconds will save me. I run down the hallway and into my room. I slam and lock the door behind me. An instant later, Dad is outside, pounding for all he's worth. You open up this goddamn door right now, you little bitch. You hear me? Open it, or things will just get harder for you. I have to change my dad. Not just change him a little, like Alexis, but change him all the way. Trembling and hyperventilating, I pull my green notebook out of my bag and reach for a pencil. No, a pencil won't work for this. Some deep, ancient part of me realizes this story is too powerful to be written in ink. I run my fingers along the cut on my forehead, coating it in blood. I press my bloody fingers on that blank white page and start writing. As the light stings through my bloody fingers, I realize that this is what I wanted to do all along. This is a story that will make my life all right. My father will be the man he should have been since I was born, the man who picked me up from school and got me a chocolate shake. Dad has stopped pounding on the locked door. Does that mean it's happened already? Has he changed so fast? There's only one way to find out, I tell myself. Taking a deep breath of courage, I walk across my room, a walk that feels like a million miles rather than a few feet. I wrap my hand around the doorknob, and before I could think twice, I fling that door open. It's August 11th which means that tomorrow I start sixth grade at Skyview Middle School.
Dad and I just got back from our trip to Disney World a couple of days ago. Mom isn't here anymore. I tried to heal her with words, but by the time I opened my bedroom door after writing that destiny-altering story in my own blood, Nicole Avery was already gone. She had been the price for Dad's transformation. No one at Skyview remembers her anymore, except me. Just like I'm the only one who remembers that Gerald Avery was once a drug-addicted, abusive felon. All of the other kids say that I have the best dad ever. Dad and I don't have to worry about money anymore. Dad is working steadily, and whenever money starts to become a problem, I just conjure some more with my words. The price is always worth it. We don't live in the grimy apartment in the projects anymore. Last April, I wrote about a house on Orchard Street going on sale, and we moved right in across the street from Alexis. I have a sleepover with her and Kaylee almost every weekend. Cecilia isn't here anymore. She vanished the day the dad and I moved into our new house. A few weeks later, Alexis told me she never liked Cecilia much anyway, that she just hung out with her because their moms were friends. We go to dinner at Ruth's Chris. We go to cold treats after. Dad says we can go on a cruise, go skiing, go wherever I want for Christmas holidays. It'll be like this for the rest of my life, the rest of my perfect life. It's the most wonderful feeling in the world to know that nothing will ever be out of my control again. Thank you, from me and the author, for listening to this story. Check out our website for the text version of the story and exclusive content in our blog. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Undergraduates and Published on iTunes. We really appreciate it.